to it. And I just remind you that our response is not only that worship, hallelujah. The cornerstone verse for what I'm going to talk about today is found in John 1.14. And uh, I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to address it till I get to the very end. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This key word, uh, glory, uh, really got my attention in developing uh, what I wanted to talk about this morning. My first, the first thing I want to ask is, is a question. In what do men of the earth glory? And I really came up with four categories that I think just about everything else could fall under that. The men of the earth glory in power. They glory in fame. They glory in wealth. And they glory in accomplishments. And I think if you were to take uh, any subcategory of that, you could probably uh, place it under one of those general categories. This is what men like. This is what excites men. This is what exalts men. One of these categories, if, uh, if we were to talk about ourselves, a lot of, a lot of times uh, those of us that are uh, humble will always tell you about our bonehead mistakes that we've made, and, uh, and we can laugh at ourselves about that. Uh, but if we really wanted to talk about ourselves, we would really want somebody to say something well about us, something that would exalt us, something that would lift us up. So uh, when we talk about glory, and by the way, I looked up, you know how you have uh, words that have a positive and a negative? Um, there is uh, seemly and unseemly. But with the word glory, there is no unglory. There is no disglory. There is there's not a negative word that goes with glory. Glory is always a positive. And uh, so that's what we, when we think about the men of the earth, what are they glory in? Those four things. But more specifically, what does Scripture say about the glory of man? If you turn to Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8 says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the sons of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand, and you have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. You know, if an intelligent aliens were to come visit us on this earth, they would observe that the dominant species that roams this earth is man. There is no creature that rules over man. And so when we talk about uh, the glory that is uh, mentioned in Psalm chapter 8, the glory is that man has dominion over everything. That is, that is a crowning glory of man. The book of Proverbs drills down a little bit more specifically in demonstrating a distinction of the glory depending on the season of life one is in. Uh, the glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Proverbs 20:29 20, qualifies that a little bit more by saying, The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. The reason I mentioned that, I told my... Uh, Mom one time in a conversation that uh, uh, the, the old person has the benefit of wisdom. 
And she said, let me correct that. I know a lot of stupid old people. And, uh, and I think she was right in that regard. The silver head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Children have a different glory than adults. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. You know, fathers get a bum rap most of the time when it comes to uh, competition with mom. Uh, any sporting event that you watch, watch those guys. When the camera goes on them, who do they say hi to? It's not dad. It's, it's mom. Hi, mom. You don't even have to hear them say it. You can read their lips. It's always hi, mom. Uh, for some reason, moms always have the hearts of the children and get the first thanks. But when it comes to Scripture, uh, it is the father, it is the dad who is the glory of the children. Children want to be proud of their fathers. They want to, they want to look at their father and they want to say, that, that's my dad. And, and they could list the accomplishments. <clears throat> and when it really finally gets down to it, they'll want to let you know, my dad can beat up your dad. And that's the, that is the crowning pride of a child. Uh, I think an honorable father is the glory of his son or daughter. And then finally, in Scripture, wisdom is glory. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor. When you embrace her, she will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Proverbs 4, 7-9 through 9 follows through with this thought. And this truism that says the wise shall inherit glory, but shame will be the legacy of fools. Well, by the way, that was Proverbs 335. Proverbs 4, 7 through 9 was the previous one I read. What did the disciples see about Jesus that was glorious? Well, they saw his baptism and it was glorious. When Jesus came to John the Baptist, he told him to baptize him. But John believed that to be inappropriate. He said, you are coming to me to be baptized. John thought that was inappropriate. He said, I have need to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, said do it because it's going to fulfill all righteousness to do so. John the Baptist had been telling his disciples that there was one coming whose sandals he was not worthy to loose the straps of. He was referring to Christ. John the Baptist understood that there was one coming. He said, this one is mightier than I. This one is more prominent than I. And John didn't feel like it was appropriate for him to baptize him. It should have been the other way around. But he did baptize Jesus. And after he baptized Jesus, the heaven opened up. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came down and alighted on Jesus. This was a sign to John the Baptist because the father had told him. He said, the one on whom my spirit comes down and remains, this one is the son of God. And then after the spirit came upon Jesus, then the voice of the father came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was glorious. Had you and I been there to see that? we would have been amazed. We would have been impressed. The disciples saw that. Three disciples saw the transfiguration of Christ, and it was glorious. Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus up on a high mountain. When they arrived near the top, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face 
shone brightly as the sun. His clothes became bright, whiter than the snow. They saw that. They had to be impressed by that. I would have loved to have been up there to see that myself. But not only that, but then Moses and Elijah appeared. And I don't know exactly how that took place, but Moses and Elijah appeared and began to speak with Jesus. And we don't know what the conversation was, but we do know that Peter, James, and John recognized them as Moses and Elijah. And how impressive that must have been to them to realize that this person that they had been dwelling with, this person named Jesus that they had been dwelling with, and now they had seen him transfigured before him, is now speaking to Moses and Elijah, two of the, of the most revered Old Testament saints in Scripture. And then after that, a cloud came over them. And once again, a voice came from heaven and spoke to them and said, This is my beloved son, hear him. These guys lost their composure and fell on their face. As Pastor Greg said earlier, they just fell down as dead men. Um, that, that had to have been a, a glorious event. Not only that, these disciples saw the healing miracles he performed, and it was glorious. Jesus caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the mute to speak. Jesus healed the leper whose skin became hideous and ominous in the sight of others. The leper had to scream out, unclean, unclean, whenever he came near somebody because he was contagious, because he had a disease that could uh, be passed on. That was the law. He had to do that. He was an outcast. No more visiting his family. No more mingling uh, with uh, those in his culture. He had, to, he had to abide with others who had the same disease that he had. They had to develop their bonds and their friendships. And Jesus healed those lepers. He healed the epileptic and the paralyzed. He healed every manner of disease he encountered, demonstrating that he had full authority and power over any disease of man. There was no disease he couldn't heal. You know one thing he never did heal? The drunkard. Why not? Drunkenness isn't a disease. It's a sin. They saw the authority Jesus had over demons... And it was glorious. I don't know that we've ever seen demon-possessed people. We've seen some people that we thought have been crazy, somewhat insane. I don't know that I've ever seen a person uh, possessed by a demon. But Jesus had authority over demons. The demons had one advantage that the disciples didn't. The demons knew Jesus. Every time he made an appearance in, uh, in, their, in their path, they knew exactly who he was. And they accused him. You are Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And he would command them to be quiet. They knew who he was. The disciples didn't fully comprehend yet who Jesus was, so they had an advantage over him. But the demons feared Jesus. When Jesus cast a demon out of a person, that person was completely free of that demon. The possessed man at gatherings had so many demons in him that they identified themselves as legion. Now, if that identif identification paralleled a Roman legion of that day, 
then the man had anywhere from two to 3,000 demons in him. They all obeyed Jesus and begged him to cast, him into, cast them into a herd of swine. But the, every one of them, he had authority over one demon. He had authority over thousands of demons. Jesus even gave his disciples authority to cast out demons. And based on that authority, the demons had to obey the disciples and come out of the person if the disciples commanded it in the name of Jesus. That had to be glorious. As a matter of fact, when he sent the disciples out on a mission and they came back, they were, just, they were glorying in the fact that even the demons were subject to them. And he said, he said, don't glory in this. He said, glory in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. That's what you need to glory in. So Jesus had authority over demons. He had authority over sickness. They saw miracles of provision, and it was glorious. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana after the supply of wine ran out. And a rebuke came from the master of the feast to the bridegroom. Because when that wine ran out, then uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him and told him about that. And so he had the servants bring these water pots there and fill them up and turned the water into wine, and then said, Now take from this wine, and take it to the master of the feast. And when he drank of this wine, the master of the feast rebuked the bridegroom. He said, Don't you understand tradition? You always bring the best wine first. And then when everybody has drank the best wine, then you bring out the inferior wine. You have saved the best wine until last. And so uh, the miracle of Jesus... In providing, not only did he provide, but he provided the very best. Jesus fed a multitude of 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish by multiplying them. So much was multiplied that 12 baskets of fragments were taken up by the disciples after the feast had ended. And then Jesus repeated this miracle to feed 4,000 on another day. Jesus demonstrated that he was the Lord who could meet any need regardless of how little one has. That's glorious. They saw the miracle of Jesus' power over the elements of the earth, and it was glorious. The one miracle that defines Jesus' deity to the world was his walking on water to come to the disciples in their boat. If anybody uh, talks about Jesus, anybody in the world, they, and, and knows anything about him, the one thing that defines him to the world is the fact that he can walk on water. That's, that, was, that was his the definition, and he was able to do that. In another event, Jesus accompanied his disciples in a ship to cross a body of water. He went below the deck to sleep for a spell. And during that time, a storm brewed up of a magnitude that the disciples in the boat thought they were going to perish. How he was able to sleep through all that is beyond me. But uh, the boat had to be tossing and turning, and yet he was sleeping through that. And finally the disciples came down to him and woke him up and said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And he got up, went out to the top. I'm not sure how the boat was, but he rebuked the storm with three words, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves went away, and the sea was calm. Jesus had authority over the elements of the earth. They saw his moral 
perfection. And it was glorious. If anyone claimed to be the Son of God as Jesus did of a certainty, there would be a number of scrutinizing eyes and ears to judge every word and deed that proceeded from this man. I find myself doing that with people. Uh, And I think it's a fault that I have. But when somebody really builds up another person, boy, he's just a man of God. He is. I watch him. Is he like me or is he really something special? Is he, uh, has he really got his act totally together? And, uh, and I find myself doing that, uh, not to accuse, but just to, just when I see that one fault in him, I go, okay, then I can fellowship with him. You know? <laughs> He's not much different than myself. Well, uh, the disciples didn't have questions, didn't have to question Jesus' morality because God provided that for the disciples in the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, a lot of times we think, boy, wouldn't it have been so much better if those scribes and Pharisees weren't there to antagonize Jesus? I think they had a valuable purpose in the life of Christ because they validated who he was. Because God took the most intelligent of that culture, the scribes and the Pharisees, the most learned men, and pitted them against Christ and his wisdom. And they failed. They could not withstand him. They would bring up questions. They would bring up scenarios. They would bring up accusations. They got together as committees and groups and tried to think of ways that they could test Christ, ways that they could trip him up, and they couldn't do it. And I think that was all part of God's plan so that we could read in there and find out this this man wasn't untested. God made sure that he was tested by bringing these people there to test him the way they did. They wanted him to fail in his morality because if if they could find one fault, then he was no longer the son of God. If they could find one flaw, he was no longer the Son of God. And that's what they wanted to do. Uh, They sought to accuse him concerning the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. And had his disciples gather food on the Sabbath, a day in which no work was to be done. He defended both deeds by explaining to his accusers that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. If there was a pressing need concerning man, that need took priority over the law of the Sabbath. And he demonstrated, and he even threw it back at them. If you, Mr. Pharisee, if you, Mr. Scribe, have a lamb that has fallen into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you not pull it out? Or would you just let it die? But the answer was obvious. Of course they would go down because the need justified that. The scribes and Pharisees sought to accuse him concerning the ease at which he would cast out demons. How are you able to do this so easily? Obviously to us, scribes and Pharisees talking, obviously to us, you are the devil. That's why why you can do it so easily. But Jesus destroyed the reasoning of that argument by telling them, you know, if Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom cannot stand because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And he says, besides that, scribes and Pharisees, your sons and daughters uh, or your sons, they also cast out demons. And by what power do they do it? So they will be witnesses against you. So he destroyed their reasoning. He destroyed their arguments. He maintained his moral perfection. 
Even in his righteous indignation and zeal to maintain the purity of the house of the Lord, Jesus did not sin. Turn over to uh, John chapter 2, because we were in John chapter 1. And starting at verse 13, it says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and poured out the money changers, or poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And a lot of people don't realize that he was genuinely angry here. He was, this is what we call righteous indignation. And he went against these guys in, in his house. But I want you to know something about this particular passage. He was in full control of this anger. When he went in there, he drove them out. He was not going in there to destroy their business. He was getting them to relocate their business. He wanted them out of the temple. He had no problem with their business. If they wanted to be money exchangers, they could do that. But he did not want them doing it into the house of God. He did not want that to be sanctioned there. He wanted them to move that business elsewhere. Because he drove out the money changers. He drove out the sheep and the oxen. These were all things that they could retrieve later. He also uh, he overturned the tables. They could go back and get that later. Pick up their money and do that later. But notice what he didn't do. He didn't break up the cages that the doves were kept in. Had he done that, they would have lost business because the doves would have flown away. Look what he said to those that had the doves. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He didn't want to destroy their business. He wanted them to relocate it elsewhere. Demonstrating he was in complete control of his anger. He knew exactly what he was doing. He maintains his moral perfection to his disciples. The disciples witnessed the resurrection. And it was glorious. One of the unique facets of God's plan of salvation for man that distinguishes it from all other religions is that it shows how and why death was destroyed. Death came about through one man's sin, that was Adam. Eternal life came about through the righteous life of one man, that was Christ, who became the sacrifice of death for anyone who would believe. Justice demands that the penalty for sin be paid by death. A person can either pay that penalty himself or he can place himself under the grace of God which allows God's Son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice and payment for his sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he was dead for three days, but death had no legal claim on Christ because he was sinless. Therefore, Christ conquered death and was resurrected from the dead. He claimed to do so in his own power. I lay down my life of my own power. I raise it up of my own power. Death had no legal claim on Christ. The resurrection. It's the amazing tenet and facet of the Christian faith. While Jesus' disciples did not fully understand what Christ accomplished in the resurrection, they certainly witnessed that Jesus, who had died on the cross before their very eyes, 
was standing before them and speaking words of comfort to them. He had died days earlier. Now he's standing before his disciples speaking to them. He ate in their presence and allowed them to touch him in their presence to demonstrate to them that he was not a spirit, he was a body. His body had resurrected from the dead. Jesus had the power and authority over death during his earthly ministry. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the dead son of the widow of Nain, and he raised the dead from the dead the daughter of Jairus. However, all these would die again in the body. When Jesus conquered death in the resurrection, he offered to any who would believe in him eternal life. Death was defeated, and the person who placed their faith and trust in Christ would be resurrected to eternal life when Christ returned the second time to raise the body, to resurrect the body from death to life. Well, all these things, the disciples witness, the resurrection, the healing, the uh, raising people from the dead, Christ's power of provision. They witnessed uh, his authority over demons. They witnessed um, his teachings. All of these things. And all of these things could be said were glorious. But I want you to look back now at John 1.14. Look what it says, and then look what it doesn't say. One of the things that I do when I, when I study is I not only look at what Scripture does say, I also look at what it doesn't say. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, the glory that is accounted here to Christ is not the glory of the resurrection, and it is not the, the glory of the transfiguration, nor is it the glory of provision, nor is it the glory of healing, nor is it the glory of casting out demons. All of these things are glorious. If you had, if you had that on your resume as a believer, I mean, you would impress people. You, you do all that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right here on my resume. I do all that. And, uh, but that's not what it said. This is not what John wrote here. He said, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. With all the things the disciples witnessed about Jesus, John makes a statement of assessment about what was the most glorious aspect of Jesus. And he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John highlights two aspects about Jesus that are a credit to His glory, full of grace. Let's consider what that might mean. I think uh, as we consider a person being full of grace, I would think the, the very fact that Jesus accepted everyone is a credit to his glory. In religions where children are relegated as second-class citizens or reminded they, that they are to be seen and not heard, Jesus fully accepted them and blessed them. He even warned those listening to him that if they did not become like little children concerning their faith, they would not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He accepted children. Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and other social outcasts. By the way, this is January. Now we've got these four months ahead of us to get those taxes together. And, uh, and I don't think we have the same 
disdain for tax collectors that they had back in that culture because they really don't come to our door and, and, and demand the money. We, we, we all do it on paper, and uh, we do it through H&R Block or on TurboTax, depending on how we're going to take care of that. But uh, really, we hate paying those taxes. And uh, we hate the thought of uh, 20, 30, or 40 percent of our income going for something. And uh, well, anyway, we're not going to bemoan that right now. But the whole idea is these guys, these tax collectors, these publicans back in the time of Jesus were hated. They were social outcasts. Nobody liked them. I think even tax collectors didn't like tax collectors. Uh, but nevertheless, Jesus would go and fellowship with them. Jesus would relate to them. He accepted everyone. He was full of grace. While the leper was an outcast and quarantined from society, Jesus readily accepted and healed the lepers who came to him in faith. Disease or disfigurement did not prevent Jesus from accepting a person. Jesus accepted the blind, the deaf, and the lame. Even though a person was not useful in that culture, but often had to resort to begging, they were readily accepted by Jesus. He was full of grace. A woman caught in the very act of adultery was brought before Jesus to secure his condemnation. But he invited her accusers to stone her by challenging them with these words. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all left the woman with Jesus one by one. Jesus asked the woman where her accusers were and she told them that there was none left to condemn her. Jesus told her that he also would not condemn her and commanded her to sin no more and sent her on her way. I want you to try to imagine what had taken place there. Maybe a half hour, an hour earlier than that, this woman was pleasuring herself with another man who was not her husband, who was the husband of another man or another woman. Different culture. Uh, And now she was brought... Before him, what's going on in the mind of this woman? She had just been involved in a, in a sexual relationship maybe a half hour, an hour earlier, and she's brought before Christ, and she is uh, she's probably scared out of her mind. These guys want to stone her. They want to kill her. And she knows what the law states. They had a right to do that. And yet Jesus would not condemn her. He's full of grace. He accepted her didn't accept her sin, but he accepted her. While visiting the house of a Pharisee named Simon, a woman of low reputation came into the house and began to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. And Simon wondered if Jesus knew what kind of a woman was touching him. Do you have, Jesus, do you have any idea what kind of a woman this is who's touching him? And of course, Jesus tells him a parable. Uh, to explain why he can accept her and why he can accept the love that she's offering to him. Jesus accepted this woman's gift of worship. Jesus loved and accepted a young man who was wealthy and in a position of prominence, even though he knew that this young man would choose his wealth over following after Jesus. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and desires to have eternal life. And Jesus challenges him about that and finally comes to the point where he says, I tell you what, you want to have eternal life? Sell all that you have and then come follow me and you'll have a great reward in heaven. And this young man walked away sorrowing because he had a lot of wealth and he wasn't about to get rid of it. But Scripture says Jesus loved him, was willing to accept him. Jesus accepted a thief 
who hung on a cross next to him. Earlier, that thief had joined in with the others in taunting Jesus with words of disrespect. Now he repented of that behavior and sought for acceptance from Jesus. Jesus promised this thief that he would join Jesus in a place called paradise. Jesus was not only full of grace, but he was full of truth. He represented the Heavenly Father to men. He told them, if you have seen the Son, then you have seen the Father. He says, I am truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was the true representation of the Father to men. Jesus' integrity was intact. There was no flaw in his character or in his words. There was no contradiction in the person of Christ. Whatever he said could be trusted. And he used a great many words. As a matter of fact, John, at the end of this book, says that if the volumes could be written about what he had done in his short three and a half years on this earth, the, the world couldn't contain it. His integrity was intact. His words were truth. There were men who reported back to the Pharisees and were amazed by the authority and knowledge by which Jesus spoke. They proclaimed, never a man spoke like this man. And the Pharisee says, are you his followers as well? They said, we've never heard anybody speak like this before. Jesus brought words of life, not condemnation. He confronted the scribes and Pharisees about their sin and about their hypocrisy. The scribes and the Pharisees were the people that were supposed to be leading the children of Israel on the paths of righteousness and truth, and they weren't doing their job. And Jesus confronted them. Jesus cared not for their social position, for their titles, for their, uh, their offices. He cared for none of that. He cared for the truth. And he presented the truth to them. And he confronted them about the fact that they had uh, allowed tradition to override the truth of Scripture. And he confronted them about that on many fronts. And they hated him for it. Well, it's my final thought. And I know I'm closing early on this. But once you've said what you've got to say, then you've got to quit. Final thought on that. That which John thought glorious in Christ, I want you to think about this. That which John thought glorious in Christ is achievable with you and me. It can be said of us that we are full of grace and truth. Believers can have the same testimony of being full of grace, accepting people, accepting everybody, accepting people because we understand there are only two, two kinds of people in the world. There's not, there's not ethnicity. There's not races. There's, uh, there's only two types of people in the world as the believer understands it. There's believers and unbelievers. And the unbelievers need to become believers. And we have that understanding. And it doesn't matter what status of life a person is in, whether they are poor or whether they're extremely wealthy. All need Christ. Whether they are sick, useless to society by society standards, or whether they're uh, tremendous accomplishers. It doesn't matter. All need Christ. We need to have that same acceptance of people to be full of grace towards others. And truth, our integrity. We need to have a testimony that says that everything about us is a reflection of Christ, is a reflection of godliness. That uh, when people look at us, they say, you know what, this, this guy Larry, he is 95% Christian, but he's got that one area. I don't want that to be said about me. 
I know you don't want to be, that to be said about you either. We want to have integrity. We want to have uh, lives that are a reflection of what Christ wants us to be. John thought this is what was glorious about Christ. He was the only begotten. We are the, the sons and daughters of God. He is the only begotten son of God. That's the distinction. But as far as glorious is concerned, you and I can, uh, can both hold the testimony where people would say, that person is full of grace. That person is truth. His integrity is intact. He, what, what he speaks is right. When he says he'll do something, he does it. That's what we want to have said about us because that's to our glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, we certainly are uh, humbled before you because uh, as, we, as we consider and evaluate our own lives, we, we sense that we come up short. Uh, even as, as believers in you, as people who have been adopted into your family, we know that, uh, that we fall short in so many areas, and it's our desire uh, to correct those things as your Holy Spirit uh, gives us discernment, shows us the things that we need to do. We thank you for the testimony of Christ. We thank you for the many glorious things that he accomplished in his life and how you tested him and how you brought him uh, through so many things uh, to reveal him who he actually is, the Son of God, worthy of uh, dying on the cross for us and then conquering death. Because for this reason, we have eternal life. Death has been defeated. We have nothing to fear any longer. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen.